Hello and welcome to the Grace Point Henderson Podcast. My name is Parker. I serve as a lead pastor at Grace Point Church in Henderson, Kentucky. This is a part of our series, Living Hope, a study in 1 Peter, and an exposition from chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Point Henderson Podcast. Appreciate your heart, your love for the Lord, and also His church, and for ministry, and Lord willing. Uh, Ryan will be with us this summer, helping us out, earning some class credit through Boyce College, and uh, we're excited about that possibility. Um, again, uh, if you uh, would like a ESV Scripture Journal, let us know, and uh, by commenting below, we still have a few of those available, and uh, we would love to help you get one of those. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn them on, turn them to uh, the book of First Peter. Chapter number one, we're continuing uh, the series that we started last week on Easter. We're backing up a little bit. Last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh, but this morning we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And uh, last week we saw that Peter was highlighting the work of God in salvation, causing us to be born again, talking about this inheritance of salvation to be revealed to us and our hope ultimately, our living hope in Christ. And if, you remind, if we remind ourselves of what Peter is doing, he is writing to a primarily a Gentile uh, audience and Gentile Christians experiencing persecution and suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And he's writing them to remain steadfast and to be encouraged. And even though they're going through suffering, he's encouraging them uh, to endure. And he's pointing them to a future reality that they have in Christ that is to come, and knowing uh, that they have a salvation that is awaiting for them, a reward that is coming, he's encouraging them because of that to live a godly life, to live as good citizen, model slaves, gentle wives, as well as understanding husbands, uh, indicating by living this way you are placing, you are showing the watching world that you are placing your faith and trust in Christ and not in the things of this world. Uh, these Christians, uh, Gentile Christians, aren't coming to the point of bloodshed yet. This probably isn't an emperor-wide, empire-wide persecution, but mainly a lot of verbal mistreatment as well as verbal abuse, discrimination, and those types of things. But it is distinctly Christian. It is because that they have professed the Lord Jesus that they are now experiencing these trials and suffering. And so uh, Peter says the reason this is happening, as we talked about last week, is because you are chosen and you're also called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so this letter, of course, all of these things are escalating at the time of his writing. Persecution would likely get worse and more harsh, and so Peter is writing, uh, as with any letter, you can kind of get a feel for what the content of the letter is, and you look at First Peter 5, uh, verse 12b, he says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And so Peter is encouraging these Christians that even though suffering is going on, that he encourages them uh, to continue on nonetheless. And so First Peter 1 uh, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this text. We'll pray together and uh, we will continue in our time. First Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. Again, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to read them with me and, and look along with me in this text. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. 
Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that you would illumine Jesus in this text and that he would make a way. And that by your spirit, you would speak to us, that you would convict us of sin. You would call us to repentance and faith. You would cause us to be conformed more to your image, that, you, that we would receive your word, that we would hear your word. We would listen, obey, and apply your word to our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to bring our attention uh, this morning in light of this passage to uh, several things, the first of which it'll come up on the screen, but I want you to note that Peter is an apostle. What is strikingly clear uh, is the form in which this writing occurs. As I mentioned previously, this is a letter. Some believe this may be a sermon or maybe an instructional teaching about baptismal candidates in the early church, but nonetheless is probably best understood as a letter, certainly in its form and style. If you note that there is a greeting, as with any other letter, he greets them with a blessing, kind of an introduction of sorts. And, and you have Peter, certainly does that. He extends what grace and mercy uh, to them in this letter. But you also note the recipients. It's to the elect exiles in dispersion in these various places. And also you note what I'm bringing us to is the author. Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter uses that frame, uh, that frame of reference, Jesus Christ, the title of uh, Messiah extensively throughout his letter. It was Peter, after all, who in Matthew 16, 18, who uh, God revealed the person and Messiahship of Jesus Christ to Peter. You see that in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples kind of come up with the answer, and, and Jesus turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says to him, you are right, Peter. And it's not because uh, you came up with that on your own, but the Holy Spirit, our God the Father, revealed that to you. And without going too much into detail there, that's another sermon within itself. It was based upon the confession of Peter as Christ is Lord, to which Jesus says that he will build his church. And, and the church is comprised of those who, like Peter, confess Christ as Lord. He is the Messiah. Peter would later uh, be called Satan, and he would be called, basically he would be another rock, so to speak. He would be a rock of stumbling and uh, in, in trying to prevent Jesus from going through the cross. In Matthew 16, just a few verses later, uh, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, uh, because Peter is trying to keep him from going to the cross. And so I say that uh, to say that, that the Holy Spirit would nonetheless continue to use Peter in a mighty way. Peter is now grown in his understanding, even in some have seen some of his errors of thinking. And he grow, he's grown to understand that Christ must suffer and did suffer. He is a witness to those things of his suffering and his death on the cross. And he writes to these Christians, as, he, as we saw last week, of this glorious salvation that now has happened because of Christ. And it's only found in Christ alone. But Christ boldly, or excuse me, Peter boldly proclaims the gospel at Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. And the all-too-often quick-lipped disciple in the New Testament is now being given authority to speak on behalf of Christ as an apostle. And even seeing that Peter, who was once previously the one to draw the sword, now brings peace and grace. And Peter speaks to these elect exiles as an apostle. 
And I bring that up because, as you can imagine, these, these people are wanting to hear a word from God. They're wanting to hear a word from the Lord in the midst of their affliction. They have maybe sought, many of them have maybe sought to bring them comfort, but they ultimately needed the comfort of Christ that would only come through the behalf of the apostles speaking on his behalf. That is the greatest voice they needed to hear. This was the pattern of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 42. And the point here is that Peter has authority to speak on behalf of Christ. Why is that important today? Because Peter will later confirm in his letter to them that he is confirming the voices of the prophets of old. In other words, his teaching is consistent with that of the prophets and the apostles. He is carrying the authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And with the death of the apostles, that authority has not been transferred to another office. For none have seen the risen Christ as the apostle has. One of the requirements of being an apostle. And while, yes, God has, through his spirit, anointed elders and leaders within the church... The authority that they carry is from the word of God. They communicate through the apostles and the prophets, through the teachings and the writings that we have in the New Testament. And when I speak as a minister of the gospel, I speak not according to thus says Parker. That's very important, but thus says the Lord. It is through the word of God, through his prophets and apostles, through his prophets and apostles. And the doctrines of the church is carried, yes, by an authoritative text, but also by an authoritative apostolic teaching. In other words, it isn't my authority, but it comes so much as it is in accordance with the scriptures and the teachings of the apostles. And I say that to say we should be leery of those who speak on the authority and behalf of Christ, yet they speak not in accordance with the scriptures. And they speak not in accordance with the ultimate authority because God has spoken primarily through his word. And you see this happening in various ways. You see it, one, through papal authority today and throughout history that comes from a misunderstanding of the Roman Catholic Church when the Pope speaks ex cathedra or literally from the chair. And according to this doctrine in Roman Catholic teaching, the Pope speaking ex cathedra on issues of faith or, mor- or morals is infallible. In other words, he does not possess error when he speaks ex cathedra. And this comes from a misunderstanding of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and other texts as well. But this is why and what ultimately led the reformers to the five solas and one of them being sola scriptura, not as the sole authority. God has certainly placed authority within the church through elders and deacons and others, authorities that are there and leaders in the church and we should submit to them But they are not ultimate authority. The ultimate authority rests in the scriptures and the teachings from the apostles. And anyone or anything that deviates from that should be rejected. It happens in other circles as well. Recently, I saw a pastor speaking erroneously of visions given to him by the Lord and asking others to do the same. But yet this person spoke nothing close to the revealed word of God through his word. And folks, we need to be leery. Grace Point Church, we need to be leery of anyone who speaks in the name of Christ while their message is completely detached from the Word of God. We need to be leery, Grace Point Church, of anyone who expounds upon what the Lord has spoken yet cannot or does not bring the Scriptures to bear on the matter. And how sad is it 
that we are more entertained by searching for a word from God when God has clearly spoken to us through his word. Christian, if you want to know what God has said, read your Bibles. Read your scripture because it is there that God has spoken clearly through his word to us. And these believers Peter is writing to hear directly from an apostle with the authority to speak. And so my aim this morning is that to say, God, what have you said through your apostle? What have you said through your word? And Peter makes use of many uh, Old Testament allusions. Some may say, well, Peter doesn't really quote the Old Testament that much. Well, that may be true. But there are a number of allusions and references to the Old Testament. And we'll discuss this briefly. Uh, We discussed this last week about his uses of exiles and sojourners and strangers. The author of Hebrews speaks of the relationship to the Old Testament and the New Testament as a shadow and of true things that are to come. This happens often in the New Testament. You see this where the author of Hebrews speaks of this in regard to the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. In other words, he says that the priesthood served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says that of the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 says that the feast days were but a shadow as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 that circumcision counts as nothing, but it is a new creation. The same as the Passover sacrifice. All of them in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, pointing to this reality of shadow and true substance. And that is certainly what Peter seems to be getting at as well. Note the language in verse 1. He says, to the elect exiles in dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want you to see, this is point number two, I want you to see the shadow of a true people. Peter calls these saints in Christ, he calls them the elect. And I'm going to separate this phrase for now from its quantifier, namely the exiles, the elect exiles, and hope to bring them together a little bit later. But I'm also forced, note this, because of this text to address a very tough and often debated doctrine, but we cannot dodge this notion of election. It is all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. I've once said, if you have a problem with election, you have a problem with the Scriptures. Because the Scripture speaks to election consistently throughout the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But 22 times is this term used within the New Testament. And the main point is showing that God has a people and he has always had a people. And every time the elect is mentioned, it's meant to bring comfort to those who are in Christ. And how telling is it that we have made this a doctrine of division rather than comfort? But that is not the aim of the New Testament. The aim of the New Testament is not to bring conflict when he talks about the elect, but to bring comfort in speaking about the elect. But the point is that God has a people. God has a love and a special covenantal love for his people. There's a great book that I would recommend to you. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. And D.A. Carson kind of paints this picture. He says, sometimes we're very flippant about the way that we speak about 
the love of God, but it really is a difficult doctrine to understand. And he breaks it down to say God has a love within the Trinity that is different than any type of love that we know and experience. God loves his creation. God loves humanity more than he loves his just creation. He loves those that are made in his image. He continues and he says God loves his people in a special type of way. And because he loves his people, he loves them in a different way. He sanctifies them. But the truth of the beloved matter is, beloved, that God has a people. And we could say in the Old Testament, it's Israel. And the point Peter is making here, the New Testament, his people belongs to those in the church. It is the church who are his people. And Peter is making that pretty clear by referring to these people, these Gentiles, as the elect in dispersion. This is a common term that was used for Jews that were scattered in the world in in 587 B.C. Peter is implying here that both Jews and Gentiles are included. God's love for Israel is seen clearly to be a special covenantal love in the Old Testament. And it is quite different than that of the other nations. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 9. Israel was a chosen people. I want you to see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This should come up on the screen. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Note this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of King Pharaoh of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And it is the Gentiles, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, who were living sensuously with passions and drunkenness and living in orgies and drunken parties and living in lawless idolatries. It is the Gentiles who were excluded from God's covenant in the Old Testament. Yet through Christ, Peter is declaring that all the nations are blessed through Christ and that from every people, language, tribe, and tongue, they have been united through Christ. And it is Peter, after all, who gets this vision in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius and about this clean and unclean and what Peter says in Acts 10 verse 30 he says so Peter opened his mouth said truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him in other words the Gentiles have been extended the grace of God as well now and Peter is writing to a primarily Gentile audience and note the language that he uses He doesn't consider them as second-class citizens within the kingdom of God. He calls them elect exiles. They, too, have been chosen in Christ. They've been born again. They belong to his church. He says in 1 Peter 2, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Gentiles are included. They have been grafted in, as Paul says. They are part of the faith and the family. They are chosen by Christ through faith in Jesus. And I think we would do well 
to nuance carefully here so not to assume the position of God and to assume that we can make judgment about who the elect are. It's that person or it's that person. Beloved, we don't know. The truth is that belongs to the Lord. He is God and we are not. And we need to get comfortable with that, especially when we talk about this doctrine. But this certainly does not reduce or diminish the responsibility of man to repent and believe the gospel, nor does the responsibility of man diminish or dismiss God's work in salvation. Lest we become consumed by this, may we rejoice in God's work and may we proclaim the gospel to all people that now is the time that we can trust the Lord and the Lord alone to save. We say it this way, we preach the gospel, God saves the people. And we as believers in Christ have a responsibility to share that gospel with all people. And sinners, all men, have a responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. And no one will say to God on the last day, I came to you, but you would not receive me. Instead, if we are condemned, if they are condemned on the last day, it will not be because of any wrongdoing on the part of the Lord. But instead, it will be because of their unbelief and their hardness of hearts. And so I implore to you today, non-believer, that has not trusted in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would trust in Christ for salvation, that you would believe the Lord, that you would repent of your sin while there is still time. But Peter is confident, and as we should be, that those who have been born again, Jew or Gentile, are a part of God's elect. And it is according to the foreknowledge, in other words, the love of God from out all eternity. And it's not because of anything that they have done, but it is because, as Deuteronomy says, because the Lord loves them. It's all His grace. And the Apostle Paul, when, he, when, when, when Christ meets, the, when, when, when Paul meets the, the Christ on the road to Damascus, he doesn't cling to his self-righteousness or his Judaism or his wisdom or any other form of human merit as a grounds of that God should accept him. He says it's all grace. I want you to see these scriptures that are going to come up on the screen, numbers of them where this is unpacked, that those that are in Christ is now belonging to those who receive Christ by faith, and it's Jews and Gentiles. But Paul says in Ephesians 1, it says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In Romans 9, you see it on the screen as well, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are counted as children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. He builds this again in Galatians chapter 3. Know that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, although who of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, Galatians 3 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in 
Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what assurance Peter gives to these Gentile believers that you too, Gentiles, you too are the people of God. You are chosen in Christ. They are considered children of God in the same way as Christ, their elder brother, is considered a son and eternally beloved. He says, Gentiles, you too are God's people through faith in Christ. And don't think for one moment that this entitles you to confuse this reality with some type of divine favoritism. Instead, you need to recognize and understand that it is all purely grace of God towards you in Christ. And the same for you, believer in Christ. What hope we have in the midst of suffering to know whose you are and who you belong to. And Peter says, I want you to know that you belong to Christ. You are God's people. You are the Lord's people. You've been chosen in Christ and you are called to suffer for his sake. And all of Israel, both Jews and Gentiles, are in his church who have received Christ by faith and have been born again. Those are the elect exiles. I don't only want you to see the shadow of a true people, but number three, I want you to see the shadow of of a better covenant. Peter continues in showing what God has done here, and it is according to, he brings three prepositions to light. We built this glorious triad last week, but note the mention, he says, of God the Father, of the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. It is God, as he is showing here, each person of the Godhead in the Trinity is working to bring about this salvation. The Apostle Paul does this same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. But he says, this is the Father's electing love. It is the Spirit's giving us new birth. And it is Christ's blood cleansing us and redeeming us. And I want to call our attention to kind of the third and final preposition, this notion of for obedience to Jesus Christ. And if you're reading in the English translation, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I I see two prepositions. What about for the sprinkling with his blood? And the answer to that is that in the original Greek, these two nouns, both obedience and sprinkling, are governed by the same same, uh, preposition. And so the logic is this, that the sovereign act of God's foreknowledge and the Spirit's work in setting us apart, have the aim for our obedience and the sprinkling of his blood. Peter, again, is borrowing from an Old Testament imagery here, specifically in Exodus chapter 24, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, in which God is summoning Moses along with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And then God calls Moses alone to come before him. And here, Moses brings the children of Israel into a covenant with the Lord. And in doing so, they were swore to obey all the commands of the Lord. Note here in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4. This says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then Moses makes a sacrifice and he sprinkles some of the blood on them and he signifies God's acceptance of them into the covenant. But he also 
gives them an obligation to remain faithful and obedient to the Lord in doing so. Look in Exodus 24, verses 4b through 8. It says, He arose early in the morning, that's Moses, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and the people of Israel who burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And the Lord and Moses took of the blood of its basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. And that that the Lord has spoken and said that that the Lord has spoken or the book of the covenant and he read it, excuse me, hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They are making themselves obligated to this covenant. Look at verse eight. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And Peter is borrowing from this imagery here as a way to say, in the same way that Israel pledged their obedience through the sprinkling of sacrificial blood, now the sprinkling of Christ's blood has been sacrificed on your behalf. And the obedience that you carry and that is credited to you and is sprinkled on your behalf is not according to your merit or because of what you've done, but on the merit of another, namely Jesus Christ. That by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are accepted into a better covenant through his pledge and through his perfect obedience and Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. That the blood of Christ has been applied to your behalf. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are counted as accepted, free from the penalty of sin. As the book of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Oh, non-Christian, listen and hear the word of the Lord. Do not attempt to stand before God in your own goodness and merit. Have you trusted in Christ and his atoning work on your behalf? It is the only right standing that you have before a holy God to be accepted and cleansed by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. Flip over and look at this with me. It's not going to come up on the screen. It says, But if you have called on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you notice what Peter is doing here? In 1 Peter 1.17 and in 1 Peter 1, he is drawing connections, almost like circular reasoning, back to our hope or back to their hope as the elect exiles. He does this again in 1 Peter 2. He says, for this you have been called because Christ suffered in your place, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sin on his, on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Lastly, I want to call our attention with that in mind to the shadow of a better land. He says, you are exiles. He says, you are the elect exiles. And here I am bringing these two ideas together. 
I separated them before. I want to bring them together now. Do you see the connection between election and the choosing of God and the calling on God to follow Christ into suffering? Because Christ has suffered in your, in your place and on your behalf. God, God's people have always been likened to strangers and sojourners in the world. And Peter identifies these Christians as the elect exiles in the dispersion. In other words, they're not in their homeland. They're aliens. In other words, they carry a, a, a different passport, if you will, and a citizenship that belongs to the city of God. Abraham was called from God, from the city of Ur, to live as a pilgrim and a sojourner. And he wandered throughout Canaan into the land of promise as a stranger. Jacob, when brought to Egypt by Joseph, confessed to Pharaohs that his year of, of, of pilgrimage, though, though few, was absolutely difficult. And in Egypt, the people of Israel were treated harshly and despised. They were strangers and sojourners in the land. And after the Exodus, God's people wandered through the wilderness looking for the land that was promised to them. And after their sin and disobedience, God brought judgment on them. And in the exile, they were once again exiles and strangers in the land. But the Lord promised to deliver them again. Yes, Jesus says, I will go and I will prepare a place for you. And in John 14, 6, he says, do not be afraid, only believe. It's interesting that in the opening chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people the exact same thing. He says, do not be afraid, only believe. And it's because of their unbelief in Deuteronomy 1 that they fail to enter the land. And Moses pleads with the people in Deuteronomy 1, verses 29 through 33. He says, it's the Lord that will go before you. It's the Lord that will fight for you and overcome your enemies. It's the Lord who will lead you faithful. It is the Lord who will prepare a place for you. Beloved, thanks be to God that through Christ there is a better way. Because Jesus says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Through Christ, our enemy has been defeated. Through the obedience and sacrifice of Christ and of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. It is through Christ's victory that he has overcome the world and he has defeated our enemies. And Jesus says, I will go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Yes, Christian, we seek a better country. Our citizenship is in a better land. So while we experience difficulties, we should expect that we be reviled. We should expect that we be insulted for the cause of Christ, mistreated, misunderstood, and suffered for the sake of Christ. And Jesus says, you are blessed when people utter all sorts of evil things against you on account of his name. But we seek a city that is not here, but one that is to come. And the way to our better country isn't found in the rights and freedoms or comforts of this world. They are found in Christ and Christ alone. For we seek an everlasting city and we are strangers and sojourners, aliens of this fallen, broken world. Because there is a better country and there is a better city awaiting whose city and its builder is of God. But we are, church, those who have been born again. Peter says, you are the elect exiles. You've been called and you've been chosen. And Peter says, he's done this for a reason that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And for the first time, 
in the history probably of the American church, we are realizing what it means to be on the outside looking in. And it is now becoming more clear, more and more clear, that we face cultural opposition in our society because of our faith in Christ. And we don't like it. Some of us have become nervous. We've become timid. We've become angry. We aren't used to it. Some of us maybe become defensive or even feel defeated. But for the better part of our history in the American church, over time we have taken our religious freedom for granted. And we've sat on our hands and we've turned inward and we refuse to serve others. And we're learning what it looks like to be a Christian in a society that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. We are no longer the good guys. And we're increasingly facing societal pressure, turning towards biblical Christianity, and it will continue to increase as time goes along. Even now, hostility towards Christianity is building, and the message of Scripture is being tainted and twisted to be deemed as hate speech, unhealthy, and too exclusive for a postmodern world. And the church, in turn, has increasingly become more and more silent, more and more inward-focused, and more and more isolated. And we have turned our attention in missions to more about the dollars that we can give more than it is about our time and our sacrifice. We've been more focused on building programs than we have disciples. We've been more focused about building facilities and focused on facilities than that of eternity. We've been more focused on building our kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And don't misunderstand me. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. And some of them may be noble and even responsible. But those are not the things that the Lord has called us to. And then I believe that in an increasingly hostile post-Christian society, I believe the enemy would love nothing more than to keep those things as our focus and attention and to refrain from missional engagement and gospel advancement and instead keep to ourselves and focus to ourselves and not engage this world. But that is not what Peter has called us to. And that is not what Christ has called us to. Instead, he says, we live distinct lives and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be holy as God is holy. We live in the fear of the Lord and not man. We live in the hope of Christ as the people of God. We proclaim the good news of Jesus, imploring all men to repent and believe the gospel while there is still opportunity. We can no longer sit on our hands. Instead, we must step up and serve. So Grace Point Church, I'm speaking to us now. I'm speaking to Grace Point. We have to boldly proclaim Christ now than more than ever before. And we have to be incredibly intentional in praying and speaking the gospel to our friends, families, and neighbors. We do not have time to waste. We don't have energy to waste. The time is drawing near and we must advance the gospel to see one more person trust in Christ. And if you're a non-believer listening today, your time is drawing near near would you believe the lord would you repent of your sin would you trust christ to save you the reality of death is hanging over you and you are under a curse because of sin but there is good news that in christ you need not fear only believe jesus says would you believe the lord and his gospel today because better than being rescued from the sting of death 
which Christ certainly does. Better than that, better than receiving something at the end of life is living in the here and now with the peace of God being reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, the gospel isn't something merely waiting for you when you die that you need to put on at a later time. It's like fire insurance. But the gospel is the sweetness of knowing Christ and life with him today. Would you trust the Lord today? Would you believe in his gospel? Would you repent of your sin and say, I'm tired of following my own way, but I want to turn, I want to repent, I want to trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. There's an opportunity for you while there's still time. For the believer in Christ, would you respond today? Would you repent and believe the gospel anew? Would you believe and would you rid yourself of sin that so easily, easily entangles you? Would you be holy as the Lord is holy? And you return to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. As the bands and musicians come, we're going to have just a time of response. And if you would like to respond to this message... You don't have to do this. You certainly don't have to. Repentance and faith is how you are connected to the good news of Jesus Christ. But we would love to talk with you. And you can do this by prompting us. Send us a message on Facebook or send us a message to an email, parker at gracepointhenderson.com. And we would love to follow up with you. In that message, if you don't have the words, just say, I repent, I believe. We'll know what that means. We would love to follow up with you. But let's pray and let's respond to the Lord together. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. For more information about Grace Point Church, go to gracepointhenderson.com. And if you live in the Henderson, Kentucky area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays, 10, 15 a.m. Be sure to click the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast.